On this long 4th of July holiday weekend, behold, a special episode of The Times. It's a crossover edition with our podcast colleagues at The Envelope. We'll hear Ivan Villarreal's conversation with Academy Award-winning actor Kate Winslet. They talk film, they talk TV, and all about Kate's latest starring role in the critically acclaimed HBO series Mayor of Easttown. They also discuss the long-anticipated film Avatar 2 and learning to hold your breath underwater. There's something so, so magical about being on the bottom of a tank, holding your breath, totally calm, no bubbles, just hanging out there for like three minutes. It's crazy. I'm Gustavo Ariano. You're listening to The Times, daily news from the LA Times. Today's July 5th, 2021. Kate Winslet remains one of the finest actors of our day. She has three Academy Award Best Supporting Actress nominations and four Best Actress nominations, with a win for 2008's The Reader. Soon, she's going to be on screen in Avatar 2, the highly anticipated sequel to the highest grossing film of all time. The film it toppled? Titanic, which she also starred in, both directed, of course, by James Cameron. Winslet recently wrapped up production on a much more intimate project. It's a limited HBO series, Mayor of Easttown. She plays Mayor Sheehan, a police detective and mom in southeastern Pennsylvania. When we meet Mayor, she's in the middle of a personal crisis. Once a local high school basketball star, she's now struggling to solve the case of a missing girl. Winslet told my colleague Ivan Villarreal what drew her to the role. At first glance, she's very tough. She's gritty. She, you know, she's strong. She's also warm. You know, she's got this side to her that is irresistibly lovable, even though she infuriates the living crap out of people. And she's vulnerable as well, but really tries to hide that. She's very much a functioning woman who's trying to keep it together. And I love the fact that here is a middle-aged woman, a mother and a grandmother, who has grown up in Easttown, knows everyone, knows their personal stories, and they all in turn know hers. And so, you know, the way in which she tries to just keep going, keep it together, sometimes just get through the day, and does, you know, she's pulling it all off. But underneath her, there is, of course, this grief, this deep emotional struggle that is almost defining her, the less and less that she's dealing with it and confronting it. And I found that really, really intriguing because it's a multidimensional thing, grief, you know. It's there, it's constantly there. It doesn't matter... It doesn't matter how much time has gone by, but if a person hasn't actually processed that level of pain, it can manifest itself in sometimes some really quite dangerous and damaging emotional ways. And and that does happen as Mare starts to unravel, as she starts to try and solve this crime, the murder that happens at the end of episode one. And of course, Mare is in charge of that case. It's up to her to prove it to the town once again, that she can be something, she can count for something, and she can still look out for people. And it's about community too, you know. In a funny way, it's really not like a classic cop drama. I don't think it really fits into that genre almost, because whilst the murder is, it's, a, it's one part of our narrative, there are many other elements, you know. There are lots of overlapping stories, people's lives in Easttown, their strength in keeping it all together and looking out for one another and and, and Mare doing her best along the way. And also, all of those people in that community know about Mare's personal grief and they dare not bring it up to her. So there's sort of, you know, all eyes on, on everyone at various different moments. It gets very personal, it gets quite complex. 
I'm curious what that unlocked for you about Mare, like knowing that she's part of this town where there really is no difference between what's personal and professional. Like everyone knows your business and like you know everyone when you're stepping outside. What did that sort of tell you about who she is? Well, it told me that she, you know, she was born and raised there. That's how she was raised. She was raised to understand community and family. It's in your DNA, you know, learning to accept people for all their faults and all their differences and trying not to judge, you know, just trying to get along, get by. And, you know, making the show, it was a very, very intense experience. I'm not going to lie, playing this role really kind of knocked it out of me. And we were a tight-knit bunch, you know. We were a, a close group of not just actors, but crew as well. And, and that was really key, I have to say, in doing something like this, because the shoot was very long. It was nearly, it was like 120 days in the end. It's a very long time. You know, a film shoot can be anything from 45 days to 65 days. So, you know, you're thinking about double the length of shooting. You do have to all get along. And, and we had an amazing committed group of people working on this show with us and um, it helped it helped with that community energy and atmosphere and and then COVID hit right in the middle of course you know of course I came back to the UK was with my family etc but I'm still in my mind playing mare and uh, and so to go back to work post the big bulk of lockdown in September and I've, I only really feel like I just finished playing her we finished in December and uh and also it's still happening as well because I was an executive producer on the show. So every edit of every episode I'm a part of. And yeah, it's, it's exciting. It's very exciting. Kate, recently you worked with James Cameron shooting Avatar 2. And the last time you worked with him was on Titanic. How was it being on set with him again? It was fantastic to work with him again and to be part of the Avatar experience, you know, when you go into that world of Pandora, like, you know, I have to say, like, you you full-on drink the Kool-Aid, you are there, you know, you understand what it means to be not V and to think in the way that they do and to lead with truth and integrity and it's very, very powerful, important messages um, in that film and uh, it was very special to be part of it. Well, you're playing a female leader of a water tribe and... You had to free dive and hold your breath. Like, what was that training like? I mean, I, you held your breath for seven minutes and 14 seconds? Yep. How is that possible? Yeah, I did. I did that. <laughs> I really did do that, didn't I? God, so cool. <laughs> the training, I love the training because it is intense and it is consistent. But what you do in this process of learning how to hold your breath for that long is you learn actually how to calm your calm your heart rate, slow your heart rate right down. And you know, there's a, there are many different breathing sequences that come into play, lots of physical and breathing exercises that you have to do. And obviously training, being in the water a lot and for a long time. So I just absolutely loved it. And there's something so, so magical about being on the bottom of a tank, holding your breath, totally calm, no bubbles, just hanging out there for like three minutes. It's crazy. Yeah, amazing. I loved it. It's the close to real meditation, I think. The closest I've ever come to real meditation. You know, I'm not, I, I can't meditate. My brain is, I'm always making like grocery lists and, you know. <laughs> we'll have more from my colleague Ivan Villarreal's conversation with Kate Winslet from the LA Times podcast, The Envelope. Stay tuned. 
And we're back. We pick up our conversation with actor Kate Winslet and my podcast colleague at The Envelope, Ivan Villarreal. Ivan asked Winslet how she adopted a very specific American accent for her role in the HBO series Mayor of Easttown. Well, we must talk about the accent. You've done many accents in your career, but how did nailing down the Delco accent compare? Because I wonder how Mayor's mindset of this idea of being lost and broken, how does that figure into you finding that voice for her and how that weighs into her voice or influences it? It's interesting because I realized that as I was learning the dialect, it was definitely affecting the emotional register of the voice I was kind of finding for Mare. And actually her register is a bit deeper than my own. You know, my voice is quite bright and spiky and I go up and down a lot and I have sort of like a bouncy tone <laughs> to my voice and quite clippy, I think, to an American ear. That's how English people speak and we kind of, it's sort of like a snappy, clippy way of talking. Whereas the Delco, it's much more like that. It's like it's down and flatter and it's sort of much more, I don't know, it's sort of a voice that exists really inside the body. I know that sounds crazy, but you know, some voices can be right up in, in, in the head, you know, quite nasal, for example. But with the Delco dialect, it's a, there's something about the, you know, the quality of it that's just way lower and, you know, kind of, you know, just it's just sort of in, entrenched in who Mare was, you know. It's sort of it's in, it's in, embedded emotionally into her. And because she did, she was born there, she was raised there, I had to do it pretty darn, <laughs> pretty darn well. Um... And it was, yeah, it was, it was a little crazy making. You know, I'm not going to pretend it wasn't. But for me, the thing, the reason it was crazy making actually is because there are sounds that are made within the Delaware County, the Delco dialect, that are very strong and could easily be pushed into a sort of a caricature voice. And I didn't want to create a voice. I wanted to create a person. I had lots of dialect samples of of local people, and there was one woman named Trish Loria. Hi, this is Trish Loria. I used to listen to her every single day on the way to work, every single morning in the car, and on the way home, same thing. So her voice would set me up. <laughs> I love that. Trish Loria. Yeah. It's all dedicated to Trish Loria. <laughs> I also need to hear more about Wawa, because I know Brad, the show's creator, really encouraged you to visit it to get a sense of the vibe when you first got to town. Talk a little bit about what that did for you, like how you absorbed that into your character. Before I started filming, I was preparing and researching, you know, doing my stuff that I always do for probably about five or six months beforehand. And I thought, how do I even connect with where I'm going? So I subscribed to the Delco Times. So I would read this newspaper every day. So to me, it kind of became this, it almost felt like a mythical place, Wawa. And so by the time I got there, I was like, oh, look, it's real. It was like Lapland. <laughs> it's Wawa. <laughs> and to, to sort of finally walk through the door of a Wawa, I don't know, I felt like, oh, yes, I'm here. One of the things I really enjoyed in the series are your character's interactions with her mother, who is played by Jean Smart. The two balance each other in such an interesting way. You know, the way they speak to each other is so real and, and genuine, like the conversations and frustrations between mothers and daughters. How was Jean as a scene partner? Oh, Jean was just 
She was just terrific, you know. I mean, she... <laughs> the comic timing, you know, she can turn humour into punctuation by just doing an inhalation of breath in a certain way and a flicker of an eye. And I would just be in fits. Sometimes we couldn't really look at each other too much because we would just crack up laughing. The great thing about the relationship that we have on screen, Helen and Mare, is that they love each other so much, but they get stuck with how they're supposed to kind of express that or show that. Mare's not really great with huge displays of love and affection, particularly in a family way. She's always like, hey, you know, just don't be like, don't do that. Like, sort of issues with things like that. So... So, yeah, Mare and Helen, you know, well, Helen lives with her, like we were saying. So, you know, two matriarchs in the one house, woof, that's tricky. That's a, tr that's a tricky thing, very tricky thing. And, you know, they just don't always get along, didn't always see eye to eye, you know, but they have this sort of honesty gene where they just can't help, they just can't resist being <laughs> brutally honest with one another, sometimes to a, the point of being so tactless that it's just rude. You know, typical mother and daughter spats that would often result in the slinging of, like, caustic verbal grenades and sometimes food as well being slung. <laughs> but it was great and we, we, we would improvise a lot and, yeah, just really look out for each other, you know. She'd often say to me, honey, do you think I should try this? Should I, should I just try? Hey, I want to try something. Should I just try that maybe? I don't know. Will that work? And I'd say, yeah, give it a go. She'd go, okay, 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 I'll try, I'll try. And then she'd do something utterly brilliant. A through line of the series is the trauma and abuse of women. And I, I wondered if playing a detective who is so close to those experiences sort of changed or shaped your understanding of what that trauma is like. I mean, it just, it just made it all the more horrifying and distressing. It didn't change it for me. It, it just amplified it. Yeah, horrifying. And actually the... Well, I won't go into, actually, no, won't go into detail about that because that could potentially... <laughs> I wasn't about to do a spoiler, but I was about to just reveal possibly something that happens in episode four, but I won't. In the case of one of the characters who goes missing, a, a, a missing person, as you say, Katie Bailey is a missing person. She's been missing for a year. Her mother, Dawn Bailey, um, who is an old school friend of Mare's, who she knows very, very well... Her mother, Dawn, is really angry at the police. She feels they just haven't done enough work to try and find her daughter. And that storyline of Katie Bailey and what has actually happened to her, we did end up pairing it back a little bit because it was, in fact, it, it was really extremely detailed and traumatic and actually based on a real story that Brad Inglesby told us about. We did have to be very careful because... We didn't want for the... It's a fine line. You don't want to tip the balance into making something that is so real that it almost could feel like a documentary, you know? It, 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 it isn't that. It's about things that happen to real people, and I feel that the show is really embedded in the sense of humanity and reality and community. It's also about mercy and friendship and compassion, and it's, it's about many, many things. So we had to be really careful not to take away from the heartbeat of the show too much in that regard. There were, there were lots of things about playing this character, even the preparation of the role, that were just, you know, were, that were extremely disturbing. Even holding a gun. I'd never held a gun. Learning how to use a gun. I didn't like that part at all. Um, I didn't like that part, not one bit. You know, Kate, I know you've said in another interview how you served as a quasi-intimacy coordinator 
during the filming of the series. I think it was during um, a scene involving Angori Rice, the young actress who plays your daughter. And you mentioned how you hadn't felt that sense of safety as a young actor when shooting those kinds of scenes. It's almost like you and Mare are in positions where you're trying to stop the cycle of trauma. Did you view it that way? You know, I have to say that, like, I always take take it very seriously, the position that I'm in as an actress who, you know, I've worked my way up. I started when I was young, and here I am as a middle-aged woman, essentially, with a lot of experience under my belt and and a very profound awareness of what it means to be a vulnerable young actor who wants to do a good job, wants to please everyone, but at the same time is still finding their voice. And I think sometimes just turning to a young actor and saying, how do you feel about this? Is this okay? And just making them feel heard and supported and having that steady hand at their back sometimes is just enough. And it doesn't always get forgotten, but in the chaos of a shooting day when you're trying to, you know, you're trying to get your shots and not lose the light and etc. Sometimes those things can get overlooked. And I've always had an awareness of what those young actors might need by way of support. And I did feel that in playing Mare, we had a lot of young actors on this show to really look out for. And part of that was genuinely looking after them. And part of it was just making them always feel absolutely included and equal. You know, it was very important that we all had, for example, it's going to sound like a silly thing, but I wanted to make sure that every single actor, whether they were cast number one or cast number 18, had the same size trailer. So everyone was just equal right off the bat. It was just, we were all in this together. There was no hierarchy. I absolutely did not want that to be the case. And I was very lucky that I was able to help in that situation because of being an executive producer. But yes, with Anne Gary, when she had to shoot this intimate scene, you know, sometimes it's just about providing that, just making the this, this space a little bit safer and being able to say to that young actor, just tell me, if you don't feel okay, I can be the one to go to the director and say, actually, I'm not sure about putting my hand there or I'm not sure about this kiss maybe lasting that long or, or just sometimes saying, how are you going to shoot this just so I know what to expect? You know, sometimes as a young actor, you don't know if it's your place to ask those questions. And of course it is. Anyone can ask those questions. But people get confused in their mind and they're just not sure. We'll have more from my colleague Ivan Villarreal's conversation with Kate Winslet from the LA Times podcast, The Envelope. Stay tuned. And we're back. We pick up our conversation with actor Kate Winslet and my podcast colleague at The Envelope, Yvonne Villarreal. Winslet was explaining how she navigates movie sets in the aftermath of the Me Too movement and how she looks after younger actors who may not feel as confident speaking out on set. We are living in a time where women are instinctively holding space for each other in new ways. And I feel that our voices are being not just heard differently, but really really received in a different way. And in terms of sort of when did I feel like I found my voice? Listen, honey, I'm just like the rest of us. I feel like I am in a way still finding it. You know, I think also that finger pointing culture that went on, you know, there's this, there was a sort of a, 
a, a kind of a slightly blurry moment when there was a lot of, well, you can't really say that because you said this in an interview 12 years ago. Well, can't people grow and change? Like, now more than ever, the world is evolving. Let people evolve. Let them learn, you know, let them hold themselves accountable for things. You know, it's like saying to a vegetarian or a vegan, well, you can't really just go plant-based because you've been eating hamburgers for 15 years. That's just silly. Well, I have to tell you, and I, and I know you get this a lot now, but that first week when everything was just starting to get real and places were starting to go into lockdown, and my friend invited me over, and I was hesitant because I'm like, I don't know if I should, but I ended up going and he made me watch Contagion. And it's probably the worst thing he could have done to me. <laughs> I was just like, why are you doing I had never seen it. But when you were making that film, did it cause any anxiety for you thinking about whether this could really happen? Well, I think we never really imagined that it would happen. It was horrifying to suddenly be in a situation where I was like, oh my God, those KN95 masks that we wore on Contagion. Oh my God, we've got to get those. Ned, quick. Suddenly it did feel like we were living Contagion. And we had worked with brilliant experts at CDC who helped us with the factual scientific side of the film and really helped us to actually create the virus. And yeah, I mean, they were speaking to my friend Scott Z. Burns who wrote Contagion and saying it's coming, absolutely coming. Take it seriously and take it seriously now. Did you go back and watch it at all during the pandemic? No, my darling, I did not. <laughs> I didn't. I wanted to watch things like Downton Abbey and like put my socks on and, you know, have tea. I think we're... You know, we're a nation of, well, a planet of people who, unless you live in New Zealand, Iceland or Australia, who just don't touch our faces anymore, you know? <laughs> yeah. Kate, thank you so much. It was a pleasure speaking with you. And you. Thank you so much. And that's it for this episode of The Times, daily news from the LA Times. Tomorrow, we examine what happens when a small town builds its entire economy around a prison and the prison then closes. Our show is produced by Shannon Lynn, Stephen A. Cuevas, and Denise Guerra. Our executive producer is Abby Fentress-Swanson. Our editor is Shawnee Hilton. Our intern is Ashley Brown. Our engineer is Mario Diaz. And our theme music is by Andrew Eben. Special thanks to Ivan Villarreal and the squad at the Envelope podcast from the LA Times. I'm Gustavo Ariano. We'll be back tomorrow with all the news and desmadre. Gracias.